Hello and good evening, everyone. Welcome to the 293rd episode of COVID Calls, a daily discussion on the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Felicia Henry. I'm a PhD student in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware, and I'm coming to you live. Today and next week, Monday, and if you missed it last week, Monday, I am your guest host. Exactly one year ago, Scott invited me to be a guest on the podcast to discuss disaster research, race, emergency management, and vulnerable communities. On that episode, I talked about the importance of redefining concepts like vulnerability, expanding how we understood the social construction of disasters. And as a guest host, I'd like to continue that discussion by inviting guests to talk about structural violence, incarceration, and environmental justice, and really incorporate my own background as a scholar and activist. Last week, we talked about the importance of recognizing the significance of the COVID-19 pandemic on incarcerated populations with Dr. Dan Berger. One year after the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, calls for racial and economic justice still are resounding across the country. So it's my hope that we amplify these calls through these next few episodes. Today, I welcome Sonal Jessel. Sonal Jessel is the Director of Policy at We Act for Environmental Justice. She's responsible for advancing the organizational's policy agenda at the local, state, and national policy levels in addition to leading New York City policy initiatives and the Northern Manhattan Climate Action Plan. Prior to joining WE Act, she conducted research in energy insecurity, housing, and public health at Columbia University and coordinated clinical trials at Weill Cornell Medicine. With roots in California and Connecticut, Sonal has an MPH in population and family health with a concentration in climate and health from Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health and a BA in Organismal Biology from Pfizer College in California. Her interest is focused on the intersection of environmental and social justice, health, and policy. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korean Time on YouTube. Just go to COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded on podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else that you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls or me at underscore grace, the number for this on Twitter. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, June 21st, 2021, there are 3,868,654 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the John Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States is 601,978. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, we've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. And I'd like to continue that reading now. This is from the New York Times. In the early 1950s, when Clotilda Douglas Yamkinchuk was one of the relatively few Black people in Nova Scotia, she applied to several nursing schools, but in most cases, she did not even receive the courtesy of a reply. Eventually, she was admitted to the Nova Scotia Hospital School of Nursing and in 1954 became its first Black graduate. She went on to work as a nurse for the next half century, predominantly in psychiatry. 
She was also a community activist devoted to social justice, the education of Black youth, and the well-being of older people. Miss Douglas Yamkinchuk died on April 15th at a hospital in Halifax, the capital. She was 89. She had tested positive for COVID-19 just a week before dying of it, her daughter Leslie Douglas Shaw said. In addition to her work as a nurse, she was the founding president of the Black Community Development Organization, which helped provide housing to low-income people in Nova Scotia. She produced a radio show highlighting Black culture, and she contributed to a book, Reflections of Care, A Century of Nursing in Cape Breton, 2006, the proceeds of which created an award for nursing students at Cape Breton University, where she had helped push for a nursing program. Along the way, she encountered racial barriers. White patients sometimes refused her care, though in one case, the patient later apologized and the two became friends. In another instance, she had won election as the president of the Registered Nurses Association of Nova Scotia, now called the College of Registered Nurses of Nova Scotia, which represents more than 9,000 people in that profession. She was shocked, her daughter said, when the runner-up, a white woman, asked her to step aside so that she, the white woman, could become president instead. The white woman said to mom, it's not your time, Ms. Douglas Shaw said. Based on her experience as a black woman in a race-conscious society, my mother sensed it was due to her race. Ms. Douglas Yamkinchuk refused to step aside and in 1988 became the organization's first and to this day only black president. Clotilda Odessa Coward was born on January 11, 1932, in the Whitney Pier neighborhood of Sydney, Nova Scotia, on the east coast of Cape Breton Island. Her family had settled there because her father, Arthur Reginald Coward, who grew up in Barbados, had answered an ad in 1914 to work in the local steel plant. He quit the plant when he felt discriminated against and started coal delivery and liquor delivery businesses. Her mother, Lillian Gertrude Blackman Coward, was a seamstress. Ms. Douglas Yamkinchuk in 1954 was elected president of the Provincials Nurse Association. After becoming a nurse, she moved in 1957 with her first husband, Benson T. Douglas, to his native Grenada, where he practiced law and became a judge, and she worked as a director of a mental health hospital. They returned to Nova Scotia in 1966, seeing more work opportunities there, and she resumed work as a nurse. Mr. Douglas died in 1975. When she retired in 1994, she was Director of Education Services at the Cape Breton Regional Hospital in Sydney and stayed involved in social justice projects. She married Dan Yamkinchuk, the community activist, in 1984, and he died in 2011. In addition to her daughter, Miss Douglas Shaw, she is survived by two other daughters, Sharon Douglas and Valerie O'Neill, two sons, Carl and Kendrick Douglas, 13 grandchildren, seven great-grandchildren, two stepchildren, Dale Ann and, Yan- and Danny Yamkinchuk, three half-brothers, Reginald Rubin and Cephas Coward, and three half-sisters, Cecilia and Clara Coward and Ethel Tomlinson. Miss Douglas Yamkinchuk received many honors, included being appointed a member of the Order of Canada in 2003 and a member of the Order of Nova Scotia in 2018. Thanks so much. So my guest today, Sono Jessel. Hello and welcome to COVID Calls. How are you? Hi, Felicia. I'm doing well. How are you? I am good. Thank you for asking. So first, we'd like to ask all our guests, where are you calling from and how is the pandemic situation or vaccination situation there today? Yeah, so I am calling from New York City. 
I live in Brooklyn, New York, though my organization is based in West Harlem. So we do spend a lot of time thinking about Harlem and Washington and what in New York City. Um, and currently in New York City, the COVID rate has gone down a lot over the past couple of months thanks to vaccine outreach. I myself have been lucky to get vaccinated and um, so have a lot of the people that, for example, work in our organization. So it's allowed us to do a lot more of our work. We particularly do a lot of community organizing. So being able to sort of get out there and talk to people and go to buildings and, and um, have that sort of additional layer of um, safety is very, very helpful. But also say we know in New York City and is true for a lot of places in the United States, there's a huge disparity in rates of COVID vaccination between different races of people. So we're very aware of that as an organization that works predominantly in communities of color. Yeah, thank you. And I'd love to return to your um, work with We Act. And so before we do that, I just want to kind of go to your background. I did read your bio, but can you tell us a little bit more about your background? What drew you to this work? Yeah, so I am originally from California. Um, my, I, I am a multiracial person. My mom is uh, grew up in India. She's from Punjab. And my dad is uh, German, Jewish, and, and grew up here in the United States. And um, so I've always grown up with a very strong sense of social justice, uh, very much because of my family histories. Both sides of my family had dealt with um, be, with displacement and the violence of being displaced, being refugees in their own land or a new land. Um, that's something that both sides of my family have dealt with in their history. And um, so I've always sort of grown up with this very deep sense of what it means to um, be marginalized and how it impacts you if uh, if there's you know due to discrimination and structural racism and inequalities due to not just racism but gender and class and caste in India especially. Um, so I've always grown up with that lens and uh, being from California, I was always very interested in the environment and what's around me and the oceans and the trees and and how our world kind of works and functions and. I just eventually sort of put it all together and it made sense. Environmental justice is something about like the world around you and how it affects you and how it affects people differently based on um, you know, where you are in the world and, and where you are sociodemographically as well. Yeah. And I really appreciate you um, really doing a really great segue to the next question, which is really around what environmental and social justice mean to you? So you kind of started talking about, you know, this relationship to the world around you. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means to you personally? Um, and, you know, how would you define that for folks that are listening? Yeah, um, I think of environmental justice almost as a piece of social justice or um, sort of one way of working towards racial justice in a lot of ways. I mean, in general, I, I think of social justice as sort of the broad umbrella of, um, you know, how communities such as the ones that my family were in, and particularly think about my mom's side a little bit more of, of how um, sort of religion and race and place have um, led you to be, to live in a place that might be unhealthy or um, has sort of pushed you into a space that isn't um, that that is unhealthy, whether that's sort of mental health or well-being or actual um, sort of 
violence or, or just sort of chronic illness from exposure to, to toxins or um, just the health impacts of migration. There's a lot there. Um, so to me, I think about social justice as this, this really big cloak of how people are impacted. And, and environmental justice is very much one piece of that to me, is um, really understanding how how people are do not have the same sort of built environment, who do are not exposed to the same things, um, and how a lot of that is due to policies and practices that are um, systemically racist and that your sort of your environment around you is a lot to do with um, your identity and your neighborhood as much as it has to do with sort of what you've done individually as a person. And so that mm -hmm. I find to be so interesting is, is around sort of this disparity in exposure to hazards like, you know, um, toxic facilities being placed in, in Harlem instead of on the Upper West Side in New York City and um, how that is very much an act of racism uh, against uh, Black and African-American community that had been there for so long that uh, the city decided that they weren't worth the, the healthy environment, the healthy, the breathable air. Um, to me, that's very much a piece of racial justice and social justice. Yeah, and I really appreciate that, right? So you started talking about uh, policies, practices, you even even in your own kind of family history talked about um, the meaning of displacement and migration, what it means to be refugees, both, you know, within and outside of your own um, homeland. When you bring up all of these things, it makes me think of, you know, structural violence, right? So you just even mentioned systemic racism. How does all of this kind of relate to systemic racism when you're thinking about environmental or social justice or racist ju racial justice? What does that mean for structural violence? How does, for you, how does structural violence really play into what we're seeing? Because you're talking about, you know, the importance of both your own personal identity, right, for someone's experience and also where they live. So race and place and and, and kind of that spatial um, distribution of, of inequality. So, yeah, what what about this relates back to structural violence? Yeah, I think it's everything. I mean, I think that ultimately it's what is decided in a system and a society that we live in that exposes people to um, consistent harm. That's really what it is to me. And that, you know, in, in my family history, I see really clear examples of structural violence where, um, uh, uh, India and Pakistan created a boundary due to colonialism and then post-colonial violence. And that led to literal violence, bloodshed of huge magnitude for people, and then what that led to is still, um, you know, 60 years later, consistent, clear harm for the communities that dealt with that split. Um, whether that's because their environment was severely altered or their homes were taken, and, and now they're not um, sort of able to go back to that land that they were on for a really long time, things like that, that just leads to long lasting harm. And that has everything to do with policies and laws and, and sort of the governance of that space that really does impact people's health. And so I think of that very similarly in, um, and I think of environmental justice in New York City, which is what we really focus on is that 
um, these policies and programs that have been put in place for forever. Redlining is one of the most common ones people talk about. That is an example to me of, of a really clear um, sort of structural harm where black communities were not given that investment that they deserve um, many, many, you know, not that many, but decades ago. Um, and what that has led to is a continued amount of harm where, um, you know, you're not, you're exposed to uh, higher levels of heat because you didn't get the parks in your neighborhood, for example, or um, your homes are le less well-maintained because you didn't get um, enough investment in, in sort of a building stock or whatever it might be. That leads to continued harm, whether that's financial or, um, you know, whether that is environmental or whether that has to do with food access. There's all these different things. And to me, that's very much um, sort of how structural harm is seen in environmental justice work. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. And you started to, to kind of describe some of the work that you're doing at your organization. So can you talk about We Act for Environmental Justice? Um, talk about the work that you, you all are doing and, and what your role um, there is. Yeah, so We Act is a community-based organization that has been in West Harlem since 1988. So we've been around for quite some time. And We Act got its start when our co-founder and executive director now, Peggy Shepard, um, was organized with, with a, a number of other people that lived in the community against a toxic facility being placed in West Harlem. And that was being placed on top of a lot of other toxic facilities that already existed in the neighborhood. So at that time, Manhattan, um, all of the bus depots, I think it was maybe nine out of 10 of the bus depots in Manhattan were located uptown in Harlem and Washington Heights. And um, then on top of that, the city was trying to place this other toxic facility, a sewage treatment plant that was spewing apparently very foul smelling toxic odors and um, nasty pollution that um, Peggy Shepard, and they were called the Sewage Seven, uh, directed, involved themselves in direct action and community organizing against this, what they considered an environmental racist act. Um, and so they fought the city and ended up being in a lawsuit. And what came out of that lawsuit was uh, money to establish the Act for Environmental Justice as an organization, as well as the treatment plant had to make a lot of changes around what they were spewing out and now this park on top of it actually that's very very um popular now um but we still work that way so we still at our core and engage community organize community to try to achieve a healthy community through policies and programs or to stop <laughs> environmentally racist policies and programs that are being put in place and so that's still the model we have today um, so we are a membership-based organization. We do bring in people, anyone in the world can be a WEACT member, but we do our organizing, we go out on the streets, our, our organizing team um, continually is, is sort of um, engaging people in Harlem, Washington Heights, and Inwood. And so all the policies that we do, everything that we work for is really based on what we've learned from our community and what community tells us they're concerns are and what the solutions to those concerns are as well. So that's what I do is I try to, I work on the policy side where I, um, I lead our, our city and our state policy initiatives. And so we try to kind of take those concerns, take those solutions and figure out how to make them happen in terms of policy. 
Yeah. And I think that that's a really beautiful model and something that's not necessarily talked about a lot um, or really highlighted the importance of that community organizing that really um, bubbling up from the ground and really taking the concerns of community members kind of all the way up to policy. And so even in, in what do you see as the importance of that kind of approach in dealing with the kind of environmental harms that communities are, are, are suffering from or being burdened with? Yeah, I mean, I think it helps. First of all, you actually are working on the solutions that are pressing to people, just simply, you know, I think that there's a lot of like environmental organizations that are sort of big green groups, we talk about that, they don't do community organizing, they don't talk to people every day. So um, their perception of what the issues are, are very, very different. And sort of their the perception of what the solution is, is very, very different. And I think that uh, a group like us that continually um, engages with community and is sort of um, is responsible for representing or advocating for community that we come with a much more nuanced lens to environmental health concerns. So, for example, a really common one is to talk about an AC system and cooling when it gets really hot. A lot of people would say, why would you try to increase the number of window AC units used when you have a climate crisis? Like we're contributing to climate change. And we would say, well, people need cooling. People are dying in their homes. People are concerned about going to the hospital because they have asthma and they're getting an asthma attack when it gets really hot. To us, we are first and foremost concerned about the health of our community. And then we hope to be able to also be working on climate change like we want those things to go together and so when we do policy work we're thinking about that first and foremost and I think that helps propel us into sort of um, more nuanced discussions about what we what we ask for in terms of policy but also um, I think it gives us a lot of strength and a lot of power because no one can tell us we're wrong because <laughs> people we're our primary source we have primary sources that said this is what's happening and like, how can you say that that's not true? I mean, there's definitely moments where we have to prove too much, I think. But, you know, overarchingly, that it gives you, it gives our, our work a lot of power because we have people that are coming with us to advocate to legislators being like, yes, this is a problem I'm dealing with, like, fix it. Um, so that's really, I think, what makes it different working in a community-based organization rather than a group that's sort of not doing that, that community. Yeah, and I really appreciate the kind of um, picture that you just painted as well in the sense that, you know, in my background, very much criminal justice, kind of, you know, thinking about carceral control. And as you were talking about, well, folks are hot in their homes and experiencing heat in their homes, and that's leading to asthma attacks and going to the hospital and they need to be cool. And at the same time, we want to think about longer term solutions for cooling and um, being able to... Um, you know, reduce the the impact on the environment. And that makes me think of um, ways that we talk about incarceration or we talk about criminal justice reform in the sense that, you know, although the the long-term picture might be abolishing the system, right? Thinking about abolition as a larger and ultimate goal. We can think about things like decarceration as this is the very, very now uh, response or the the response that most directly um, 
influences the day-to-day lives of people who are incarcerated as we are getting to a system in which we can think about a a totally different response to harm. And so I really appreciated that picture because I think that that is something that we can apply to a lot of different areas, right? Like we can apply, what does it mean to address immediate needs and at the same time build in um, spaces and, and, um, you know, policies or whatever practices that can get us to that long-term goal. And so speaking of, you know, criminal justice, carceral control, all these kind of things. So we met on a roundtable. Um, your organization sponsored a roundtable on environments of justice in prisons and kind of making this tire, this intersection. So can you talk a little bit more about that project, kind of the impetus behind that project and kind of where you all are, are going um, with that work? Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate what you just said, because I do think that there's so much parallel and on overlap in like the way you think about um, the criminal justice system and how to reform, then abolish, or, or, you know, how to protect people on the pathway to something bigger. And I think that's exactly the same type of thinking you have. And I think that's just automatically the way you think about things when you're working with people and talking to people every day that are experiencing or living an issue because you're like, you're not going to say, oh, I don't care about you. I just care about the person 10 years from now. You know, I think it really changes that vantage point. Um, but yeah, so so we've been working, we were working on this project together. And, and the, the impetus really came out of um, my my former boss, Cecil Corbin Mark, who, who he passed away in the fall, but he was really the one that sort of came up with this idea. And um, I think he really saw a need to create a space in New York State sort of policy work to talk about this overlap of environmental justice and criminal justice or environmental justice and the the state of incarceration. I think that was something that he noticed. um, It's something that a lot of people know a lot about and talk a lot about, but is it prominent in sort of the policy space or the advocacy space in terms of sort of concrete plans for um, for you know a, sort of a policy action agenda for addressing that very specific part of issue within incarceration I think maybe he saw that as an as an open space not not specifically because people that work in the criminal justice world don't think about it, but more so because groups that are in more the environmental space don't don't think about it or don't do that work when it seems like such an obvious thing to be considering. Um, you know, we work in a lot of different environmental coalitions and environmental justice coalitions that do statewide policy work. And none of them really take into consideration the um, policies that we should be thinking about when it comes to are incarcerated we're always thinking about everything else everyone else um, so I think he saw like a lot of room for that and that there could be at so much added power to bringing two sort of big groups of activists and advocates together and and sort of pushing pushing these things forward um, yeah so we, we created this we had these these roundtables these discussions about like what are environmental health and environmental justice issues when it comes to um carceral facilities and there's a lot i feel like we talked about a lot of it but i think we could have talked 
way longer about a lot more things. Um, I think we really almost just scratched the surface and I found it very fascinating about the, the, the very clear connection and overlap that exists amongst people that are experiencing um, hardship due to the criminal justice legal system and people who are experiencing hardship due to environmental justice. There's such a, a clear overlap and um, it's clear that these issues are really compounding and um, make make health outcomes so much worse, whether we're talking about yeah. well-being or, or mental health or just, just sort of physical health. Uh, yeah. I think those things are all made very, very clear. So we hope to, like, we we want to keep working on this and, and create sort of some clear we have, and we're coming out with them, some, like, very clear goals for, like, what to do in New York State to try to make some short-term, medium-term changes to the way we um, sort of look at environmental issues in carceral facilities in New York State. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's a, a wonderful, so I, you know, absolutely. And I'm a little biased. So I think it's a wonderful um, campaign and project to really to be intentional about that overlap and be intentional about how those issues really reflect one another and influence one another and compound with one another to impact individuals and communities. Right. And so I want to spend a little bit of time here and draw out some of that overlap because there are folks that are listening that, you know, may know tons and tons about environmental justice, but not necessarily, um, you know, uh, tons and tons of things about criminal justice or the criminal legal system and then vice versa. Right. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about some of those examples. One example that really struck me um, was, you know, there was a, a, for, a formerly incarcerated person at the round table and he was talking about his experience having asthma when he was younger in his community and then going to prison and developing COPD. Right. And so thinking about kind of this like cumulative impact on health for individuals who are from communities who might be marginalized or disproportionately burdened with environmental kind of harm and then go to a space like you said earlier where they deem them unworthy of like clean air and clean facilities right so can you talk about maybe another example of this uh, overlap or this kind of continuum as as you've seen it in your work or are thinking about it after that round table yeah, I think the cumulative impacts piece to me is is the the most powerful one that you mentioned. I think that that one is the most powerful one to me, and the one that explains sort of exposes the the system that we live in and the society we live in in the worst possible ways. Um, so I really agree with that one. I think that's that's really important. Is you know. As a as a person of color, you're growing up in a. You're more likely to grow up in a community that has poor air quality. You have asthma as a child, then you are more likely to become incarcerated, and then you are in a space that is you know has mold or 
for um, ventilation or um, it's too hot and too cold and, and um, you develop things like COPD. So that's a really good example. Um, and then that's sort of with you for the rest of your life. I mean, that's a big impact. Um, another one that I think was really interesting that we talked about a little bit was around sort of the siting of toxic facilities. I think that's really interesting to think about is um, how it is communities of color, predominantly United States, Black and African-American communities, Latinx communities, as well as indigenous communities that are sort of um, toxic facilities are sited in their neighborhoods. And um, that is also very common that penal colonies and prisons are in spaces that are deemed sort of unworthy for living for anyone else or are next to toxic facilities or also sort of might become their own toxic facility if we're thinking of like Rikers penal colony. Um, I think that's also a really interesting parallel is sort of that environmental injustice that you deal with in both settings and it has everything to do with your race. Yeah, and I really appreciate that because we're talking about, and this kind of came up last week as well during our episode with Dr. Dan Berger, we're talking about um, systems and structures that really interplay with one another and kind of sit on a continuum a continuum of, of one another as well, right? So it's not like we're talking about distinct and separate communities that are experiment experiencing environmental injustice or, you know, have the kind of food deserts or have the, uh, you know, the, the siting of toxic facilities or the poor air quality and then an entirely separate community that are, you know, that are experiencing the harms of mass incarceration, right? As you're talking about and really showing it's a continuum and in some ways exactly the same communities that are burdened with these kind of harms, right? And so what does that look like? What does that mean for those individuals and communities when we think about kind of harm on top of harm, legacy of harm kind of across decades, across centuries, right? So I think that that's really important and really helpful for us to kind of frame that we're not talking about new issues, even if there is like new interest in this time, but we're not talking about new issues. We're talking about things that have existed for a while, right? So I really appreciate that framing. And just a reminder for the audience, you can catch COVID calls. You're listening to COVID calls right now and you can catch us live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to COVID calls on YouTube to watch and you can hear us anytime recorded on podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else that you get podcasts. And you can also keep up with us via Twitter using the handle at US Disaster of Disaster at COVID Calls or with me at underscore grace, the number for this. So please help us spread the word and send suggestions for guests, future topics, and all of that. So, Sonal, just diving back in and kind of continuing what we're talking about. Let's kind of talk specifically about COVID-19 and its relationship to environmental justice. Like, what are you seeing? How are you understanding this? How are you interpreting COVID-19 through the lens of, of your work? Yeah, I think, um, you know, as someone who has been trained in public health, COVID-19 hit and I just put that public health hat on very fast of like, People need access, people need education, people need protection, people need social structure, and none of that exists. <laughs> um, so it's very scary. Um, I think that as an environmental justice group, I think that COVID-19 sort of hit a lot of things for us. 
I think one thing that's really important that I would, I just want people to think about so much more that they're not is the fact that this is just one pandemic out of what will be our future of more pandemics. And that is because of climate change. That's because of the climate crisis that we're seeing an increase in infectious disease and vector-borne diseases. And that is something that has been heavily researched and acknowledged by the scientific community. Um, and so a lot of times I think about COVID-19, I'm like, wow, um, are we ready for the next one? Like that's, that's where my brain goes to, is like, how do we make sure that we are um, preparing? Like, what are we learning from this process of how unprepared we are for things like this? And then how are we acknowledging the fact that what we're doing to our planet and the climate is going to lead us to have more pandemics and they could be much worse than this one, we never know. Um, so that's one thing that I think about in terms of long-term. Um, the other thing is just that simply the, the same things that put people at risk for more severe cases of COVID-19 or to contract it, more, be more likely to contract it to begin with, are the same things that put people at risk um, for health issues due to environmental injustice. Like they are the same catalysts. Um, so for example, air pollution is the, the very clear example that people use a lot. Um, people that are exposed to poor air quality, which is um, predominantly communities of color in New York and the United States overall, uh, are more likely to have a severe case of COVID-19 due to the fact that COVID-19 really impacts your respiratory system. And so that legacy of environmental injustice and environmental racism, where these communities of color have poor air quality due to the siding facilities, due to lack of green space, due to um, sort of poor maintenance in their homes, due to all the different reasons, those are the same reasons why people are contracting more severe cases of COVID-19. Um, so that's one clear overlap that we sort of jumped on quickly in terms of how do we respond to our community. Um, and then also just basically the same communities that are dealing with higher rates of COVID-19 are the same communities that we deal with every day that have issues with access and affordability for a lot of things that protect them from environmental hazards. So um, extreme heat events, hurricanes, um, whatever it might be, the neat, the sort of capability to um, prepare for extreme events, um, rebuild after those extreme events, have the sort of financial and material capability that you need to stay safe in those, in those times are the same things that people needed to stay safe from COVID-19. Not to mention, on top of all of it, there are the same communities that have been exploited by our medical system for so long, there's such a lack of trust and, and very valid mistrust by a lot of communities for our medical system. And, um, so I think, you know, you add all of these different things on top and we're dealing with, again, the same community that we work with, this community that was more at risk for COVID-19 and still is, and also might have a little bit more vaccine hesitancy as well. Um, so it's all kind of come together. And one one really clear example for us was um, we do a lot of work in extreme heat and uh, the pandemic really was started to get very bad last March and into the summer. 
And the first thing that I started saying to New York City and advocating for was, um, people are going to be stuck in their homes. We need ACs. Like, what are we doing about this? Like, people that are at risk to extreme heat are the same exact people that are at risk to COVID-19 more so. They might have to work even though, like, they can't work from home. They might be living in crowded homes. They might not be able to afford different interventions that they need. All of these different things. So that was one of the first things that we kind of jumped on was to get people safe in their homes when it felt unsafe to be outside, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And what does that mean for kind of priority issues? Right. So you've identified a lot of the things that immediately either struck you or came to mind when you started thinking about the overlap of the pandemic to your work. What does that look like now? You know, a year and a half into the pandemic, what are some of those priority issues that you all are thinking about working on really translating like the example that you just brought up in terms of um you know, getting cooling units for folks who are the same kind of people who are exposed or at risk? Yeah, I think oh, there's been a lot of conversation about ventilation and ventilation systems in schools and homes. And, and um, I think that is a good conversation, a very smart conversation to have for the um, consideration that future pandemics will happen. Um, you know, it's not only going to help people stay safe now because the pandemic still exists, <laughs> even though it's getting better, which is good in a lot of places. But, um, you know, I think that's a big discussion that's going to continue and that we're using very much as an opportunity to say, OK, how do we couple sort of recovery from a pandemic preparation for the potential of future pandemics with the, the need to combat the climate crisis? OK, that leads us to say, we need to be investing a lot more time and a lot more money into equipping lower income households in a place like New York City for um, extreme events. And we can put pandemics under that category of extreme events. So that's something that we're really looking at a lot um, is sort of home safety and affordability of that as well, because um, electricity costs a lot of money in New York City. And that is a very big barrier for people to use the electricity they need to stay healthy and stay safe. Um, so that's something that we think about a lot. But that's just one example. I mean, there's a lot of discussion around social cohesion and community. How do we increase our social networks with each other? Whether that be um, New York City has a Be a Buddy program that is a program they do for the heat where, um, you know, on a, on a heat wave, you kind of have people in your, in your building or neighborhood that you call to check on if they're maybe more at risk to heat illness. Um, so things like that can be expanded and should be expanded. Um, so that community takes care of each other, for example. So the discussion of like, do we have a hub? Do we have like a space for people to go to sort of connect with each other? Um, and is that space resilient if there's a hurricane and we lose power? Is that the one place that will still have power that we can go to? You know, so all of those things are still coupled as, as discussions. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. And so switching gears just a little bit, but really still in the same um, spirit of the entire conversation, which I think has been really an amazing conversation and just really bringing into sharp focus so many of 
exactly what we wanted to talk about, really, right? Just thinking about the structural impacts of policies of racism, of violence on communities and what that means for environmental justice and how folks are organizing against, um, you know, whether it be the siting of a toxic facility or heat or extreme events, just kind of thinking about um, not only the actual events, but responses to the events that are really generated by the community. So thinking about a different kind of um, response or community-based response. Um, it's been one year, a little over a year now since George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, their murders and the, the subsequent protests that um, were sparked all over the world really last year. What do you think has been the impact of those protests of kind of those in some ways, uprisings across um, across the, the the nation and really across the world. And how do you think that relates back to you know what you're seeing in your work and the communities that you're working with? Yeah, I I think that the uprising last summer and Black Lives Matter as a movement. I've said this to so many people, and I'll say it a million times over. I don't think our organization would be where we are right now if it wasn't for that. I mean, I think that that work has unlocked the potential to have such um, empowered conversations and empowered advocacy, like active advocacy towards environmental justice policy that I think would have taken much longer if all of that activism and all of that I think that it's it's really very so clear um, what Black Lives Matter has done to put a movement like environmental justice in the forefront of environmental work. I mean, for so long, um, environmental justice as a movement was very much uh, for funders, for popular media, for um, just people that aren't people of color was so much sort of like a back burner, small little thing that um, for so long didn't get the time or the money that it deserved to do the work. Um, and I think that the Black Lives Matter movement has really enabled us to go so far with advocacy around what I consider this to be, which is racial justice work. Um, even just, uh, I, I remember someone told me that they, that back in the day when they were doing environmental justice work, they couldn't say the term environmental like they just couldn't say it in a room um, and now we say it all the time like in a really strong way like this is environmental racism like I think all of that would not be possible um, and what's interesting about the environmental justice movement is that it, it was born out of the civil rights movement it very much was I mean people say that Martin Luther King Jr. did environmental justice work advocating for sanitation workers and the rights of sanitation workers and a lot of that um, a lot of that work led to the establishment of the environmental justice movement by African-Americans and black people that were activists in the civil rights space um, that noticed that there was this specific issue that was going on um, that was part of that racial justice work. Um, so we very much, you know, yeah, I think that it really enabled so much to happen. And I think that um, you can see it because groups that never paid attention to environmental justice before that aren't led by people of color or not black led um, are 
sort of coming out of the woodworks and, and are asking us for time and, and um, ideas. And uh, we're, 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 we've got a, a lot more phone calls these days <laughs> than I think maybe before the uprising even. Um, so yeah, I think it's really done a lot. It's really done a lot in really great ways. Yeah. And, you know, I'm so grateful for you bringing that up. I mean, you know, as a Black woman myself and just thinking about the impact of, you know, the, the constant violence against um, Black and Brown folks in this country. And I really appreciate you talking about this kind of rich history of uh, kind of civil rights or or fights for racial justice and environmental justice. Because I think, you know, as you were talking, I think people tend to associate environmental justice kind of, you know, folks talking about climate change and talking about the environment with, um, you know, folks who are not, you know, people of color, with folks who are not really in the day to day living kind of these experiences. And it is in some ways kind of associated with more of like a, uh, you know, some you, you can kind of put it on and take it off and you can, you know, be um, you kind of step in it and step out of it. But, you know, what you're really bringing up is the um, very real interplay and legacy of the same kinds of communities fighting for civil rights and for racial justice, also fighting for environmental justice and how those movements um, feed one another. So just as we saw um the environmental justice movement really being born out of that, you know, civil rights era, we're again seeing, as you're mentioning now, this kind of new era of Black Lives Matter also being able to usher in a new kind of wave of environmental justice and that kind of attention. And so I really appreciate you, you know, bringing that up and really and shining a light on that. Um, what do you think still needs to change, right? So you talked about it really ushering in, in you know, some attention, some recognition, some um, some energy that had not yet been there or had not been there in those kinds of ways. What do you think still needs to change? What do you still think needs to be the impact of of those um, of the movement and of the of that work? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot of desire and support for environmental justice interventions and the sort of hyper local to national to global scale, environmental justice is something that happens, is, is like a global fight. Um, I think what I'm waiting for is that, that real sort of jump into like, let's actually do this now. <laughs> um, there's so many recommendations, like um, our executive director is on the, um, the White House Environmental Justice uh, Advisory Council and they came out with what's called the Justice 40, which is where to put 40% of the funding um, when it, in, into sort of environmental justice specific in interventions when we're talking about addressing the climate crisis. And there's so much rich information in there that I'm just like, okay, when's it gonna happen? You know, let's do it. We're ready. We know what we need to do. You know, we know we need like close to a billion dollars or like lots and lots of money to put into revitalizing our public housing. Um, we know we need money for mass transit. We know we need to upgrade people's homes and they can't afford it to themselves. So what are we waiting for? Um, I think we have all of this ready to go and are just really, you know, there's, there is some progress we made. There are some programs out there that is doing it, but we're waiting. I'm waiting for that big, shift where I'm like, wow, this is all really, really happening. Um, 
because we see it in different pieces, but um, I'm waiting for that sort of big moment where I'm like, wow, this is, this is really going on. <laughs> um, and I think one thing that is interesting that people talk about, and I know this is sort of something we mentioned a bit in our, in our round table is the idea of reparative justice. And I think that that, that framework can be used for environmental justice really clearly. And that I think that discussion should be central to our discussion around a just transition, which is the idea that as we move away from fossil fuels and move into a new type of economy, how do we do that while centering people impacted the most by climate change and not leave people behind? And this this framework of reparative justice, I think, can be really amazing for that work of like, um, who are the communities that we've been harming the most for so long and how do we make sure that our investments are going there first and um, addressing harm that's that's been done. Um, so I think that is also a really important part of the conversation that's happening in a lot of really great places, but I'm waiting to see it like really on a massive scale yeah. get, get put into place. <laughs> Yeah, totally understood. And, you know, as you're talking about models like reparative justice, are there other models, other policies, other even jurisdictions or communities that you think are really enacting kind of effective interventions or responses for both dealing with the pandemic and also balancing, um, you know, environmental justice in that response? Yeah, you know, I think that the discussion of sort of where we reinvest after disaster and where we decide maybe we don't need to reinvest again is really interesting. I think that there's a lot of potential to move away from um, funding major fossil fuel companies, for example, and start to think about, okay, if we need to build back a lot of jobs because there's high rates of unemployment, why don't we be putting, you know, creating on-the-job training programs and offering um, ways for anyone to get into the renewable energy industry, because that's where we need to be going. And so I think those are really interesting ways of thinking about sort of like during pandemic, post-pandemic, like how to sort of get people sort of the, the long-term security that they need, which is often by way of financial security. Um, so I think it's LA, maybe Milwaukee also that uh, is doing work training people who are incarcerated in solar or renewable energy uh, work. And then they're able to be a part of a fellowship upon release and actually work in that industry and then build up that expertise. So I think things like that are really amazing models of how to be doing this just, just transition work it's centering people that um, have been harmed by our systems for so long and sort of make sure that they're centered and, and um, have a lot of the knowledge that they need to be a part of this sort of new economy that I think we should be moving forward in this COVID recovery. Um, when we're pumping lots of federal money into spaces as a response to COVID-19, where are we putting those dollars? Um, I think it's a really to be asking them to be watching out for very closely. Yes, very important question indeed. And um, really glad you brought it up because uh, Scott and I actually worked on an essay a couple of months ago talking just about that, right? Like, what is a just recovery? What does that look like? What does that mean? And what does that mean for communities who 
have been harmed historically. So when we think about kind of building back better, quote unquote, um, what does that mean for communities who might not have actually had better before, right? And do we build back to kind of the status quo or do we think about new and innovative and creative ways to ensure that we're not just going back and returning to what has been, but really thinking about ways to invest in those communities um, and in that work in a different way so that folks can actually come out actually better, right? As opposed to um, kind of superficially better. Um, we're, we're getting close to the end here. And I just want to remind all of our listeners, we are here with Sonal Jessel from We Act for Environmental Justice. And as a reminder, you are listening to COVID Calls, which you can catch live most weekdays at 5.30 Eastern Standard Time, PM. And you can just go to COVID Calls on the YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime, recorded on podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeans, or anywhere else that you get podcasts. And you can keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of disaster or at COVID calls or me at underscore grace, the number for this. And so please help us spread the word, send suggestions for guests and future topics. And really appreciate all of you who are tuned in and listening and all of you who will actually be listening even after the live has ended. Um, we are having such a great conversation talking about environmental justice, structural violence, thinking about communities who have been historically impacted by COVID and also thinking about and talking about uh, community organizing and thinking about ways that we can generate responses directly from folks who are impacted by exactly what we're organizing around. So Sono, for, for folks who are listening and kind of thinking about your work, right, as um, with We Act and being a member organization, how do folks get involved? How can folks get involved in, in social justice, environmental work? What does that look like? Yeah, I think that it starts from the local. Um, if you're in New York City or really anywhere in the world, you can become a WEACT member. So um, that's first things first. Anyone can go to WEACT.org, I think, backslash membership, and you can become a member. And um, we host uh, lots of events, lots of workshops, lots of working groups. There's a lot of opportunities to volunteer and to just learn. Um, but if you're not in New York City and you want to find us, uh, an organization that is is more hyper local and working on issues in your community. There's a ton of organizations like us spread across the United States that are community based organizations that are led by people of color. Um, there's there's so many, and, and I suggest starting there because that's also where um, is sort of the 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 most impact happens, the most direct response to people happens, um, and that's where you can really volunteer on the ground to to work with people and, and um, impact your community in a positive way and that you're doing it in a way that is led by community and, and um, not led by people that might be aren't from there don't, don't really know what exactly the issues are around. So I think that that is really important. Um, people are looking to get involved in environmental justice. There's a lot of groups like us um, that are, that are community-based. But yeah, I mean, you can get involved with React at any time. We have a lot of events. Um, a lot of them are virtual right now, so you can tune in from anywhere in the world. <laughs> um, but we do hope to get back into person very soon, um, in which case we do have um, lots of fun things going on this summer. I think we'll probably have some movies where we watch a movie out in West Harlem Pierce Park, um, which is a park that we act help uh, get established, as well as those barbecues. And we do voter outreach, actually, in our city elections tomorrow, we can volunteer at the table and help get people out to vote, that's 
that window is closing, but um, we do a lot of work like that. So anyone can come. Yeah. And so my last question for today, so thinking ahead, we're in June 2021, um, a year and a half into the pandemic and, um, you know, vac vaccination rates and situations are changing every day. Um, but what is your hope for this year as we hopefully move closer to the end of, of this pandemic, but also keeping in mind, as you have already talked about, thinking about the ways that our um, world is changing and you know, in anticipation of, of new ones, but what's your hope for this year? Yeah, I mean, I hope that we move through this pandemic, not only in the United States, but globally. Um, I think that a lot of people in the United States have family from it all over in the world that everyone's very worried about. And um, I think that's one big hope I have. And the other big hope is that I hope all of the, um, the promises and, and all of the potential that is coming from a new administration, helping us sort of move into a better um, type of recovery happens. Um, things like public housing gets considered a, a really important piece of our infrastructure and we get funding for things like that and, um, and really put our money where our mouth is when it comes to environmental justice. Yeah. Thank you for that. And Sonal, where can people find you? Um, how can they reach out to you and get involved? Yeah, you can find me um, at WEACT on uh, my email is listed on our website if anyone gets involved. You can also find me on Twitter at Sonal360 so thank you so much once again for sh sharing your time and spending time with us today and really talking about um, some some really, really important issues for folks and really making some ties that I think is really my hope for me as a guest host and as all of these episodes, which is really tying together um, issues of structures, issues of, of larger systems and policies and how that really impacts our day-to-day -day, um, selves and world. And so I really appreciate you drawing out a lot of those ties and drawing out um, a lot of those experiences, which I think is really encouraging and also hopeful to know that there are folks that are impacted and um, that are burdened with things like environmental injustice, but are resisting and and fighting against it and organizing against it. So really, really encouraging. So thank you so much once again, and thank you to everyone tuned in. Um, we appreciate your time and we hope you a very good night. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Felicia. Absolutely.